A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. You know, just when you thought it was safe, right? We've been talking about millennials for, it seems, so many years, so so much with the work. All of a sudden, we now have to start talking about Gen Z. And, and as we even consider Gen Z, there's even Gen Alpha coming up. So, you know, we're not done. There's, there's more generations to come, and um, we're going to get ahead of the game. So today, I've got with me an expert on the topic, Katie Irving. She is the founder and CEO of Moonshot. They're, they're experts on youth culture, uh, marketing, branding, and uh, they do a lot of research on youth and, um, and help their clients out with uh, really knowing how best to market to these, to these different groups. So especially if, if, if you happen to be in retail or other areas, you're going to find this interesting. Uh, but also, I think it also translates to what, what we can expect of the workforce. So, uh, you know, for all of us, we're going to be around for a while, and hopefully we'll be around for a long time. We're going to have kids beyond the millennials coming into the workforce very, very quickly. And we have to be ready to, to shift and adapt again. So Katie, thank you for coming and being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about Gen Z and all the exciting changes they're going to bring along with them. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, I think, I think this will be a really, really fun show. And so, uh, you know, as, as we dive into it, you know, one of the things that we always do is we always take a little bit of time in our show to, to have our experts uh, kind of explain to how they got to where they are. And, and again, here you are another expert and you're expert certainly in a field that that um, I don't know a lot about. Um, I don't know about our listeners, but how do, how do you get here? How do you become an expert on generations that are yet to come as opposed <laughs> to the ones that are already here? Great question. I mean, it's certainly not where I thought my career was going to go when I first left college. So I'll kind of give you the, the cliff notes on how I got to where I am. So I'm from Nashville, originally born and raised and um, always wanted to work in the fashion industry for as long as I can remember. And um, so I've worked in the fashion industry at this point for almost two decades, which I cannot believe that I've seen a lot of changes in that time. I spent most of my career in the corporate world. So I worked for brands in London and Paris and New York, and I spent a lot of time in the trend forecasting and strategy and insight teams, mostly for kind of youth focused brands. And, you know, a few years ago, I started to kind of feel all these changes that were happening within fashion. I mean, it was kind of like a runaway train and you know, I felt like my career had sort of turned a corner into a different place than I had imagined being. And um, I decided to kind of take a break from, from the corporate world and reassess and work on kind of taking my career in a new direction. So, you know, within my time in the fashion industry, I've seen a lot of things happen around ethics and, you know, the human and planetary cost of fashion. And I just felt this real pull to kind of be a part of the industry and kind of help move it forward into a new phase. So, you know, drawing on my, you know, 15 plus years of experience working with teen and children's customers and retailers, I decided to um, work on helping align brands in the fashion industry with the emerging values of these generations. And by doing that, you know, kind of the overarching mission for Moonshot is all about creating a more ethical, inclusive, sustainable future for the fashion industry. So 
Yeah, that's uh, it's been a long journey, and but yeah, that's how I got here. So your mission, though, isn't really just out of the blue, and your mission isn't because there's a marketing niche for it, but it is where the world is going. It's 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 what our 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 not just our current generation is starting to look for this, but the upcoming generations are as well. Yes, exactly. And, you know, that's why I like working with youth brands. And, you know, to be totally honest, when I started my career, I, I worked in luxury women's wear. So I started in Paris working for, you know, big runway brands. And that was really how I saw myself always working and um, had the opportunity many years ago now to, to work with a team brand and just fell in love with that area of the market. I mean, youth consumers, they're incredibly progressive. They're early adopters. They are just a really fun group of customers to work with. So since I started working with youth brands, I've never looked back and, and that's how it's always been. <laughs> yeah. And so, uh, you know, just, just maybe a question out of my ignorance. Uh, how do you define youth brands? So what, what are the ages? So I usually define it as school age, but I do actually go up to kind of young adults now because what we see is Gen Z, the oldest ones are around 26 right now. So, you know, Gen Alpha and Gen Z, that's my main area of expertise. Expertise. Gen Alphas are still being born. So that goes all the way up from kind of like baby toddler and then um, up to school age. And then Gen Z starts currently at around 12 and goes up to about 26. So maybe to reframe it a, a slightly different way, um, you know, when we think about, you know, the terms, I mean, I'm, I'm technically a Gen Xer. Um, and then, of course, the millennials came. What, what were the what are the years, the birth years for millennials and then the Gen Z group? And then what begins the birth year for the, the Gen Alphas? Yeah, so they roughly run in about 15-year sections. So Gen Alphas are, are born up to 2025, but they started being born in 2010. Gen, Z, or Gen Zs um, started to be born around 95, up to roughly 2009. And then millennials came before that. They started to be born around 1980. Now, there's a little discussion around the years. So depending on which sociologist you talk to, they might kind of go up or down two or three years in either direction. But that's sort of roughly how the generations break out by age groups. Gotcha. And so you know, as we think about the workplace, we think about the demands. Um, here you are, you're, you're taking a look at what the, the flow is. And so you create this this company, Moonshot. And um, how, how does it look today versus how you, how you started? Is it is it still working on the same premise or has that evolved over time as to what you do for your clients? It has evolved. And, you know, I will say in general, working with team brands and within this space has evolved hugely over the last decade. And really, that is due to sort of a power shift that's happened within the fashion industry, but actually within a lot of industries where we're starting to see the customer come out front and really lead. And brands are, instead of being able to sort of dictate trends or ideas, it's just flipped the other way. So the customer is really in charge. And so that's been one of the biggest things. And so when I'm trend forecasting now, it's not about can you uncover the trends? Their question is really how well can you connect with your customer? So that's the biggest change that's happened. Well, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, we've seen this in sales all the way around. I mean, how, how sales have shifted, even B2B sales 
today are different than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. I mean, there when when um, I f- was very first exposed to a sales process, it was always about what could we do for you? And this is why you should buy my product. And we're better than everybody else. And you should come with us. And there are companies that still market that way. But that's not really where things have gone. I mean, you know, a, a potential client or customer really wants to know, can you solve their pain? And what is that pain? And that requires connection. That requires understanding and how to meet them where they are as opposed to trying to get them to come to you. Exactly. That's so well said. I mean, I totally agree. One of the mantras that that I that is one of Moonshot's mainstays and what we say to every brand we work with is you have to exist to enrich your customer's culture, not to tap into it. And that's one of the biggest shifts, especially when you're dealing with younger customers. I think for a long time, it was this idea of like, okay, well, there's youth culture and we have to figure out what's happening and how we can be a part of it. And it just feels disingenuous and and authentic to younger customers now. So what really works is when brands are able able to build a strong relationship with customers Mm -hmm. where there's kind of an ecosystem and a dialogue happening and um, customers want to feel part of the the brand. They want to feel part of the creation. And um, on the whole, younger customers, they consider themselves creatives and they just want to be part of it. So yeah, it's all about community and connection. Yeah, and uh, you know it makes me think. So when you were when you were in the corporate side of things before you created Moonshot and you were um, working for these big brands, did you did you feel that they were open to this sort of change, or did you work with some of them that were really kind of closed? Like this is who we are, this is who we market to. We're going to basically dictate because I, I think in some brands. You know, I don't know fashion well enough, but some brands really get very, very focused. And in some cases, that's a good thing. But they also, there can be an arrogance in a brand, right? That says, you know, people will come to us. We're only going to do this. And there are times when they fall out of style. So for instance, um, and I have no scientific research behind this, but, you know, I'm kind of a watch nut and there's all kinds of, of brands that are out there. And, you know, you notice that Rolex seems to still be what they are today. I mean, maybe there's been a few changes, but it's kind of like they are what they are. And, and I don't know how that that's working for them, but you know, I, I was looking at some mega watches. I get an email the other day and they've really changed their design to appeal to younger people. Right. And so, you know, these are two you know luxury brands in this particular case, one of which seems to be modifying and one of the seems to be kind of um, you know, sticking with an older model. What have you experienced as far as that's concerned? And are these that are staying to the older models, do they still have the ability of being successful? Or is there a point in time where um, that's going to start holding them back where they might start losing customers? Yeah, that's such a good question. So, I mean, I've been fortunate to work with brands who are really progressive and open to ideas in my career, but certainly within the greater landscape, We've seen brands who have been less able to kind of adapt to new ideas. And I think luxury is a really good, it's a a good area of the market to kind of talk about this around because I do think there are kind of two schools of thought within that luxury space right now where some brands are sticking to tradition and what's always worked for them, Um, you know, and that has been tricky because what we've seen in the pandemic is that a lot of those brands, they didn't even really have Omni or, or digital strategies in place because they really built their brand on that person to person customer service. And that has been really tough for them. So where we've seen 
brands really come out in front were the ones that were early adopters within the luxury space for digital and for the way that they support their customers and a lot of different platforms. So I think, you know, we're seeing the ones who are more adaptable start to win. Whereas, you know, not to say that there won't be a place for the other ones, but they've certainly struggled and they've struggled more during the pandemic than other brands. Yeah, I, I, I could certainly understand that. And, you know, just to pause for a moment on our thinking, you know, we're, we're using the word luxury brand and, you know, in economics, the word luxury has a very specific meaning. And I wonder if it translates to the same thing when we think about fashion, but in economics, luxury, a luxury good is defined as a good that's not needed, but, but instead wanted. So it doesn't necessarily have to be an expensive item, but but it's it's not a nece- it's not a necessity. Whereas a, a basic brand or a basic item is something that you have to have to live. You got to have food to live, right? You got there are certain things that you have to have to live. Um, but when we talk in, in in luxury, when we get into fashion, it, there is a connotation that they tend to be the more expensive, the bigger name kind of um, kind of items. Is that correct? Well, that has been correct. So I think that definition that you just said, that totally is true for fashion, um, but it's not necessarily correlated to price, although it, it can be correlated to price. So what we've seen happen over the last kind of five to 10 years is, you know, hype culture and streetwear really changed the luxury space. So we've seen skate brands like Supreme become luxury brands, which is not something that I think anyone saw coming, you know, sort of 20 years ago. And their price points are, they don't compare at all with what you would consider a kind of luxury um, luxury brands. So I think that that's been a really interesting shift where you start to see what people value and what, what they define as luxury starting to change because it's really predicated on this idea of scarcity, which these brands have, you know? Right. Right. And when you say scarcity, you're not talking about that they only make so many of them a year. You're also talking about scarcity of materials and sustainability because what I'm noticing um, you know, and when I think about even, you know, how, you know, not just, just my kids, but how some of their friends think that they'll pay, f- they'll pay more for an item that is renewable, recyclable, that is better for the economy than a comparable item that might not. And, and it may not be so much that they're, they're valuing, oh, you know, this has more gold in it, or this has, you know, a bigger brand name, but they are really about that sustainable piece. Totally. That's a huge shift that's happening in the market too. And so much of that is driven by younger consumers. And actually the younger you go down in the market, so even to Gen Alphas, the oldest of which there are 10 and 11 right now, I mean, they care a lot about this. So what we're going to see happen over the next decade or so is this just become baseline for brands. I think every brand and every company existing, they have to, you know, bake this into the core of what they do. It has to become a main pillar of their companies because it's just so important to these, to this massive wave of consumers that's going to be entering the market. Thank you for that. And, you know, I I want to explore that a little bit deeper. Um, You know, I want to dive in and understand some of the why behind it, because there is a shift in thinking that's going on. And I don't know that these kids are necessarily, quote unquote, being born that way. I think we're trained to think and whether it's our parents. And yet many of them may have parents that don't think in terms of sustainability. So this is coming from somewhere. And this is this is a this really is becoming to be an important thing. We're actually to the end of our first segment. 
So uh, we're gonna we're gonna take a break, everyone. Um, you know, the the conversation is gonna stay very very interesting because we we all need to be concerned about um, you know where our world is going from a thinking standpoint. And and as uh, Katie mentioned a minute ago, if our companies are not set up, if we're not thinking about this stuff. Uh, we're going to we're going to be falling behind, and some of you might think, well, you know, um, my product doesn't have to be sustainable. You know, we do this, or we're B two B. Well, it's not just about the product; it's about being the kind of company that Gen Z and Gen Alpha work for. So, stay tuned, and we're going to talk more about this. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of the Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. We're back with Katie Irving. So, Katie, just before we went to the break, um, you know, what was really interesting is we, we were starting to talk about these, these shifts in thinking and trends, but this stuff doesn't happen out of the blue. And, you know, we've got, you know, if you think about the Gen you know, the Gen Z group, right? My daughter's a Gen Z by this definition, but I'm a Gen X. So, you know, you generation skip a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we, we have to grow up before we have our kids and all that. And, um, you know, our kids often learn from us. And as we go to Gen X and, and, and even baby boomers, as we get to some of the older generations, though there are many of us who are, are somewhat conscious of the, of the world and what's going on, I don't know that we are certainly to the level that it's, it's happening today. The concept of sustainability has become so big and so important. How has that happened? What, why, is, why has it become so important for these kids? What's, what's occurred that, um, that's gotten them so focused on this? I think it's a good thing, but you know, help me understand where it came from. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And a lot of it comes from 
you know, this growing concern over the planet. So it's been making headlines for a while and it's sort of, you know, crescendo quite a lot over the last few years. And for those of us who are parents currently, these are values that we've sort of acquired. You know, I, you know, was born in the early eighties, knew a little bit about recycling, but I wouldn't say it was a huge focus during my upbringing. And so this is something I sort of had to acquire and sort of come to on my own as an adult but it's certainly a big focus for us as a family now, and it's a big part of how we raise our daughters. So I think it's just this difference between older generations who have acquired these values and have an understanding of the urgency, and then now we're raising generations. And so I always think of sustainability and caring for the environment. as It's like the air that they breathe. So I'm raising a Gen Alpha, and this is just natural to her. She talks to us about single-use plastic all the time, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, it's like it was that I wasn't even thinking about that because, again, it's just it's something that I it's a it's a leap for me still. So I think it's just it's about the the way that they've been raised from birth to care about this. Yeah. And I, I think it's going to take it's going to create a shift. But that also means, again, the the companies that they're buying from and even the companies that they're working for have to shift. So, you know, it, you don't have to go very far back in time in business history when um, businesses didn't even think in terms of mission and vision and those kind of comments. And then somewhere around the 70s or 80s, we started talking about mission and then, you know, vision and vision statements came into play and, and these were important. And today, the process of visioning, thinking about the future is still very, very important. The process of having a mission, you know, answering kind of questions as to what you're trying to do is important. But those things are now even taking a backseat to the concept of purpose. So, you know, mission and vision kind of tell the world what we're trying to do. But purpose says, this is why we do what we do. And that why has become very, very important, even starting with the millennials, that why has become important, not just in their choices of buying, but where to work, right? And so uh, what can you tell us about that and that shift? And, and, you know, for our companies, it may not necessarily be selling to these generations at this point. They are going to be hiring these people. My daughter is in college and will be in the workforce in a couple of years, and she's that Gen Z. I mean, they're, they're coming into the workforce now. Yeah, um, it's a great question. So, the, you know, and what's interesting about it is that the way that companies are going to want to attract and retain these customers is really similar to the way brands are going to market and interact with these customers. So, as you said, purpose is extremely important. So, they're going to be looking to work with brands that have really strong corporate social responsibility policies. You know, so sustainability is going to be really important. They're going to want to ask a lot of questions about you know, your supply chain, how people are treated within the supply chain, they're going to expect transparency as sort of a baseline. And that's a definitely a big shift in um, hiring that's happened over the last decade or so. So yeah, it's going to be very different. It's going to be more values driven, for sure. Yeah, that, that the values driven thing is, is really become big in the last uh, 10 or 20 years. I think I actually think it's a really good thing because values alignment enables better relationships, right? And so, and, and this is becoming a value and it may not be a company's core value, but it might start becoming permission to play. So we talk a lot about the importance of companies having core values 
um, in hiring and firing against those core values to create a level of alignment to enable relationships. And there's really no such thing as a good or a bad core value. They just are, right? Um, and they're usually reflective of the leadership, the ownership, the person that started the company. But there's another thing we don't talk a lot about, and that's a permission to play value. And permission to play values are often those things that must exist for somebody to be successful in the workforce and must exist for somebody to be successful as an organization. And those could be things like, for instance, um, you know, integrity is really a permission to play value in the banking industry. Just think about this. You wouldn't, you wouldn't put your money in a bank where there's no integrity. I mean, it's, it's permission to play. If, if banks that don't have integrity don't last, we've seen examples of that over the years. Safety is permission to play in the airline industry, right? This, this whole piece on the ecology and what we're doing is almost becoming permission to play for everyone, for every organization to have that thinking. Um, I'm, I'm thinking this through. I actually think every single one of my clients has some form of initiative now going about becoming greener. And, and the funny part is, and you might laugh when I say this, some of them don't even know what that means, right? They, they, they have kind of a general idea, oh, we need to change to LED light bulbs and stuff, and all that stuff helps. But they're still even trying to figure out what green means and how the effect on the ecology is, but it is becoming permission to play. And furthermore, now we've started seeing universities create, um, create degrees around this. You know, and, uh, you know, my daughter's girlfriend, is, as an example, is getting a degree in a field. You know, she's getting her master's degree. She's already got her degree. She works, she works out there um, in the world. She's very successful. And, and um, she's getting her degree, her master's degree on this, so she can go in and work with whatever company she goes to work for, the one that she's at now, and help them become greener companies. Amazing. I mean, some, so in my network right now, um, some of my favorite people to work with are sustainability consultants. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they just do incredible work. They're really making a huge difference in the industry. Now, you know, most people I work with are focused within the fashion industry. There's huge hurdles there and that's just a huge problem to solve for sustainability. But well, yeah, like, like, it is. like what? I'm curious. So I, I don't mean to cut you off, but, but I'm, I'm just so curious because it's an industry I, again, know very little about. What are some of the hurdles in the fashion industry? So many. I mean, <laughs> where to begin? So, you know, a lot of it has to do with the supply chain and the fact that so much of how fashion operates has been sort of shrouded a little bit in mystery. I mean, even a lot of fashion brands themselves don't have full visibility to their supply chain. So when you start to look at within sustainability, you know, the commonly accepted version now is, yes, it's about the planet, but it's also about the people equally. So it's really about looking at, you know, how are you paying fair wages? What are working conditions like throughout your entire supply chain? And for some companies, that is a big task. And, you know, just to go further than that, the raw materials within fashion, those are a big part of, of pollution and sort of, and that's where the biggest part of pollution comes from within the fashion industry. So there's a big, there's really big topics here to tackle. And, um, some brands are doing well, like smaller startups are doing some really interesting things. I think for bigger brands, it's like turning a giant ship around, you know, so it, it takes time and it's complicated. Well, uh, let's face it, you know, money still drives a lot of things, especially when you talk about supply chain. And so, you know, you know, prior to um, the ecology being something that we were talking about, prior to being green, you know, I, I need to get this design made 
as cheap as possible. I'm going to need 10,000 yards of it a month or whatever the case is going to be to put this output out. We're going to start making golf shirts or, or whatever the case may be. It's high production. And so what do you do to keep it cheap? You know, the textile mills now are, are all in Asia. Not They're not all in Asia, but, but there many of them are in Asia. And, um, and that keeps it cheap, but the working conditions are poor. You know, as you mentioned, just the process itself of dyeing materials um, all, it can be highly toxic depending on what they're doing. And, you know, one, one thing I'm curious about is there's been a, you know, there's been a, sh- a fashion shift through the years because I can remember when I was a kid, polyester, right? I mean, oh my gosh, you know, it, it doesn't wrinkle it, you know, it doesn't stain, you can clean it. And it was a big thing. And basically it's well, you're wearing a plastic shirt. I mean, I don't know how else to describe it, right? <laughs> yeah, and then um, And then we had this whole shift to natural materials, you know, cottons and wools and all that stuff and, and all that. The polyester suit, thank goodness, went the way of, <laughs> you know, of almost extinction back in those particular days. Today, we don't wear suits so much anymore. But we're, shift, we're shifting back to those materials, which, again, I, I would think is the sustainability is in question. So I, I don't know how many people know this, but take a look at the ingredients in your quote-unquote, you, know, um, you know, dry fit equivalent shirt golf shirts. I, I know I'm just speaking from the standpoint of a, of a guy today, but you know, our, our golf shirts are, you know, if you look at the materials list, there's not a lot of natural materials in them. And um, you know, how, do, how does that affect things? I mean, so, so we've, as an economy, moved towards these, these items, but is that going to last? Are they finding ways to make those things sustainable or are they going to have to move away from those materials again? Yeah, I mean, I I think that natural fibers are certainly preferable, but there are barriers to that. So, for instance, organic cotton is really, you know, it's time consuming to grow and currently demand is outstripping what we can create. So, you know, there are some barriers to kind of what we can do, but I do think along the way we can harness technology and there are ways to improve processes and reduce the amount of plastics that we're using and reduce the toxic chemicals. And yeah, so there, there are things that can be done. I think it's just, um, it involves a lot of cross industry collaboration. And as I'm sure you can imagine, the fashion industry has not been great at sharing information about what they do, but I think it's getting better. And I do think that brands are starting to share wins and misses. And I think that that's helping other brands grow and learn along the way. So we're starting to see some traction. And I think that because that customer appetite is growing, it's sort of helped them feel a little more confident that they can really step into this now because I think you know in the industry for so long it was well people won't pay extra for this or they won't do that and that's less of a conversation now it's more like okay well we know we have to do this the customer cares about it it's also the right thing to do so now we're going to figure out how we can do it so you know as, as you talk another another thing comes to mind and the word that's popping in my head is transparency so fashion industry isn't alone um, a lot of industries you know, minimize transparency of how they produce, you know, how they produce what they produce. I, I give you a, a, a non-fashion example. I spent the first half of my life in the food industry. And, you know, the dirty little joke in food manufacturing is if half the people knew how we made some of this stuff, they'd never eat again, you know, <laughs> or, or what was in it. And, yeah. you know, there's been a lot of talk, and this is why you've seen shifts to organics and stuff, but we, if you can't pronounce the words in the, um, in, you know, in the ingredient list, should you really be eating it? And some of it's okay and some of it's not. 
but we also know that the way crops are grown and the whole reason why GMO is starting to come on is because there are, there are things that are happening in that industry that are forcing a change. Um, food has become very transparent. It's had to. It's had to because you can't take the risk of somebody getting sick because of an allergy. We have more allergies today than ever. Um, we were talking about my, my daughter who, who has, uh, hopefully I'm not speaking too far out of school, but you know she's developed a wheat allergy. Well, is she really allergic to the wheat or is the process of growing mm-hmm. the wheat what's causing the problem? That's a real question in my mind, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because we didn't have wheat allergies 30 and 40 years ago, but in order to keep up with production. You know, the comment you made earlier, the natural fibers is hard because we can't keep up with the demand. Same thing with food. They're having to find ways. They have to do this this engineering just to, to, to keep the food flow going. Otherwise, we, you start moving into famine situations. Nobody thinks about all those consequences. So we have this, situ- this situation with whether the population, whether we can sustain the population with the current growth and, um, and where we can go from that. But, but it really does come back down to transparency. So a lot of companies have their dirty little secrets. They don't really want you to know the di- difference. Yet the Gen Z and Gen, I'm sure the Gen Alpha is going to follow, they're almost demanding transparency, right? I mean, are they going to start walking away from brands that aren't transparent? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's exactly what will happen. And, you know, social media has given customers direct access to brands. So you can look through the comments over the past few months of a number of brands and you'll see customers asking really pointed questions about the way they produce what they produce, how they treat their employees. You know, especially when when COVID, when COVID was first happening, when we were seeing lockdowns happening, we saw a lot of customers asking questions around, are you paying your employees? Are you laying people off? Like they, they, they want to know this information and they feel a right to that. And I think that the difference is that, you know, Gen Z and these younger consumers, when they shop with companies, they feel almost like an ownership with them. They sort of vote with their money. And, you know, in return, they expect transparency and they expect answers to these questions. So I think that's, that's a huge part of that customer brand relationship. Yeah, it's, it's going to be, it's just becoming more and more important. And um, this is going to scare companies. This is going to scare some of them. And the ones that don't comply are going to find themselves behind. You know, um, one thing that, that gets discussed a lot is, is the concept of a disruptive technology. You know, when people are afraid of, quote unquote, being disruptive. I, most people don't really know what that means, but they're afraid of it. Well, disruption can, can come in many, many forms. It's not necessarily somebody coming out with something new. You know, people automatically think, well, you know, disruption, somebody's come out with something brand new and they've changed and now people are going to go to them. Disruption can often be about access, that, that people are providing something that the customers want. So the, the, the classic example of disruption was, um, was at when Apple brought iTunes to the market. You know, they weren't the first to create an MP3 player. They weren't the first to do any of that. But what they did was they made the ease of access to music so much better. They made it easy for people. And that's what happened. And I think this is the same kind of thing. This is about ease of access, access to information now. It, it may not be other things, but how do, we, how do we fulfill that need? And that can be a major, major disruptor. So we're at the end of our second segment already. So, um, you know, stay tuned. We're going to continue this conversation and get into some statistics and some other things that I think are important to know so we can all be, you know, doing a better job of, of planning and being ahead of this shift that's coming as opposed to being caught behind and, and being disrupted. So we'll be back uh, in just a couple of minutes. 
it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. True results happen where culture meets execution. The Execution Culture, co-written by our host, Chris Elias, is designed to make your company smarter, faster, and stronger by sharing real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture. The book is available now on Amazon. Click the link on the show page. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Mexicute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. For a free consultation with Chris Elias, visit nexecutegroup.com. That's N-E-X-E-C-U-T-E group.com. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with Katie Irving. Katie, before we went to the break, we were talking about the importance of transparency and the shift that's occurring. And I know that there's, you know, uh, that you have a lot of information about what is to come and can help predict the future. I don't get the sense that we have a lot of time left to start making these changes. And if we don't make the changes, we're going to get caught behind companies behind the companies that are making the change. And, and the world shifts quickly. You know, um, you've mentioned to me, uh, you know, over the break we were talking and you said, you know, with as crazy as the last decade was, the next decade is going to be even crazier. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on that and, and where things are going um, in, in greater detail and, and maybe give some advice on things that companies need to start doing right now, maybe some specifics? Yeah, sure. So it is going to be a wild ride the next 10 years. Um, you're right. Companies don't have a ton of time to adapt, but they, there is still time. And, and that's, you know, that's sort of one of my specialties is working on that. So just one of my favorite statistics to pull up to kind of explain the changes that are going to happen over the next decade is if you think about Gen Alpha. So I talked about them at the beginning. So those are the little brothers and sisters of Gen Z. So the oldest Gen Alphas are like around 10 or 11 right now. So they're going to enter the workforce in the next sort of 10 to 11 years. So we're not too far from that. But 65% of Gen Alpha's future jobs don't exist yet. So if you think about the changes we're going to go through between now and then, I mean, that's huge. Um, you know, some of the other changes that I think brands had to prepare for is just that every brand that operates 10 years from now will have a full 360 sustainability strategy. I mean, you won't be in business if you don't have that. So that's a big shift. And, um, you know, the other big change is just technology and how much that's changing the world. That data, how we analyze it, um, that that relationship between customers and brands around data, that's going to be a huge part of it also. And then we're, we're seeing some of the things that I'm forecasting have to do with looking at, you know, where the physical, virtual and digital worlds come together to form 
new economies, brands will be born in virtual spaces. I mean, so there's, there's some wild and crazy stuff we could get into, yeah. but basically there's, there's a lot of stuff that happening. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and, and it, it's really funny when I think about it, when I was, when I was a kid and, you know, in, even into my young adult years, I was kind of the expert, you know, my generation was the first to have personal computers. You know, uh, that all started in 1985. And I remember when we got our first computers at school and, and how, you know, I was the one in the family and, uh, and, and others that were teaching others the technology. Now I feel so far behind. I feel like the old guy now, right? So when we talk about where, where digital is going, you know, one of the things, of course, we get concerned with is, is, is it seems like there's such a shift happening. And it's, it's okay for the people that are doing it. Um, we're shifting more and more to digital and that is changing how relationships work, right? That, you know, everything from how we date to how we choose materials. There was a time not too long ago that you, you know, who would buy a bed without laying in it first? Okay. Now you want to ask that question? Look at a company like, um, I don't know, like Purple or some of the others that are selling beds online very successfully. And of course you can try it in your home and send it back. But, but the point being is there is this major shift. And, and I think that, that um, there are many that have their heads in the ground saying, well, there's always going to be this, this social aspect. People always have to come together. But there really is a change happening here. How we work could be considerably different. Nobody, people said for years, oh, you can never really have a remote workforce. And, you know, how do you police them? And how do you keep it? But yet, look at the last year with COVID. People are working remotely and companies have figured this out. Totally. Yeah, it's such a change. And I think one of the things that's really interesting is that there is kind of a dichotomy there where, you know, we, we do have this shift to digital that's happening right now. And I think, you know, COVID has obviously accelerated that, although we were already on that pathway but it's also kind of strengthened our realization of how important human connections are at the same time, it's simply because we've had a lack of that over the last year. Yes. So I'm going to be really interested to see, especially with the younger generations, how they start to marry those two things together going forward. And I think it will be different, but I think in, in what's potentially a good way that they might not let that digital technology overwhelm the personal relationship and that more kind of like in real life aspect that's so important. Whereas I think we were sort of on that path before and now I think there's a greater understanding of like, nope, you got to get in the same room with people. There's no replacement for that. <laughs> yeah, I often think that sometimes these things are like pendulums. You know, people say they're cycles, they're like circles and or I think in terms of a pendulum, I mean, again, even fashion, some of the designs that we see coming in and it's not just it's not just fashion, it's, it's other levels of design. You know, white kitchens, as an example, are in right now. Light and white, you know, you're seeing a lot of that. And you're not necessarily seeing going back to, to Formica, but, um, you know, you go back far enough to the modern kitchen, we shifted to white, you know, 20, 30 years ago, and then we shifted to natural wood. Now we're back to white. We're seeing the same things with fashion. Um, you know, designs that were passe just 10 or 12 years ago are back in again. Um, and I think there is a, even how we utilize technology. Technology is an enabler, but how we interact has shifted. And I think it does switch back and forth. I totally agree. I mean, having forecasted trends now for almost two decades, I mean, I've certainly seen that. The trend cycles, once you do this job long enough, you can see them coming pretty far in advance. And I think, like you said, like we're seeing early 2000s trend that's been happening for a while, the Y2K idea. And then we've seen the 90s nostalgia be around for 
several years now, which is interesting, you know, trend patterns on the whole are kind of slowing down, going into holding patterns to a certain extent. But, um, you know, what I find interesting is, is going beneath the surface of those trends and saying, you know, why do these continue to trend? Why are they sticking around so long? And I, I really think it has a lot to do with people seeking nostalgia and comfort. I think there's anything pre-digital technology feels incredibly quaint, you know, like Tamagotchis and like little flip phones, your, your first yeah. car phone. It, it just feels quaint, like from a completely different era. And I, people find that comforting. And so I think that's why we continue to see these things trending and they, they're still happening. Well, look at the resurgence of vinyl, right? And so, mm-hmm. so digital music, which again started kind of really the, the first digital music recording, I would think was the early eighties or something, you know, uh, you know, true. The first CDs started coming out and it was really all about clarity. And you'd think with quality and things getting better, we would want more and more of that. And I remember hearing, I think it was an interview with Joe Walsh where, where he said, you know, things have become so digital. Music is so perfect that it almost doesn't sound like a human being is playing anymore. He said something to that effect. And he said, and there's just something about the old recordings where we would play live and then maybe remix a few things where, where, you know, you would have a little bit of a mistake here or there or those kind of things that made it very, very real. And boom, all of a sudden, Look what's happened with vinyl. People are buying vinyl records again. You know, just when we thought it was safe, right? To, to, to get yeah. rid of all our vinyl <laughs> records. Now all of a sudden people are buying them again. So true. So we, my family, we have a huge vinyl record collection. We love our music. I, I, some of them my mom gave me. That is the ones that she had in college. And yeah, so we're super into that. I mean, I'm a big Neil Young fan. I think he's done a lot of work around like, he's not a digital music fan. Yeah, so he, yeah. he loves vinyl and, and yeah, so we love that too. Well, that's great. And so, um, you know, for, for companies in particular then, I mean, we've talked about going green. We've talked about things in, in a general sense. Are there any specifics? Like, where's a starting point? You know, if a company's really trying to figure this out, and, and again, it may not necessarily be about their, their product, because maybe they don't have a, a product that they sell to youth. Maybe they're a B2B business or whatever. But if a company is really considering now, how do I really get into this? Okay, I've heard this enough times. Maybe it's finally time that we start you know, doing something about it. Where do they start? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the most important thing for brands to do for this to be authentic and genuine, which is key for, the, for its success, is they have to go all the way to the core pillars of their brand and they have to make sure that they're integrating sustainability all the way through every part of it. So it has, so it, what it has to become is sort of a filter through which you start to make decisions about the company. And, you know, because companies operate in so many different ways and, and, you know, we're talking to a lot of different companies, um, I won't get too specific with that, but I do think, you know, at the core, what's most important is that customers and your employees feel like this is coming from an authentic place because we've had a lot of greenwashing in the industry. I think customers are really savvy to that. And they're really savvy when brands are kind of just trying to signal that they're doing something good without actually doing the work. So don't be that company. That's the biggest thing I can tell you, like be genuine about this and, and really think about it. And the other thing is that it takes time. No one, no customer expects you to have it figured out. So don't worry about that, but own your opportunities that equally as how you own your wins, you know, and I think just be open about it as you're going along. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think what you're saying is so, so such, um, 
such an important point. And I think that there are lots of ways you can get there. I mean, maybe it's just as simple as start talking to your customers about this and find out what's important to them, right? I often think the customers will tell you what you need to do if you just ask. And a lot of times we don't, right? Exactly. Because I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen brands do things over the past few years and you can look on social media and the comments are literally like, no one asked for that. We don't want that. Why are you doing this? And it's like, yes, before you make big changes like that, bring your customer on board, you know, let them inform you, use, use focus groups, like really understand that you're making these changes, but you're doing it in a way that, that feels right for them and, and is a good fit for your customer base. Well, and I think that, that a, another logical step is as you uncover some of this is, you know, hire an expert. And, and there's yeah. two ways you can do that. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, there are so many, you know, now the consultants, consultancy groups that are out there that, that will come in and say, you know, have you considered this? Have you considered that? And I think you got to make sure you hire somebody who understands your industry and where you're going and what is important. So for instance, if you're, if you're a, a, a manufacturing company and you're really focusing on being green, you know, what that might look like are ways you save electricity because that translates to green down the line. You know, you, you know, you might not necessarily be using a quote unquote renewable material because what you're building may have such a long shelf life that renewability looks different. Like if you're manufacturing, um, you know, a machine that's all metal and, and maybe it's got, you know, a, a wood bench or a stone bench or some of those kind of things. Well, you know, how do you recycle a machine? Well, it goes, it gets taken apart, gets melted down. I mean, there's things that can happen, but you know, you're not necessarily thinking if you're building a machine that's got a 30 year shelf life sustainability, but you could look at your manufacturing process, right? What are you doing there? To, to make sure it's safe, it's clean. Are, are you utilizing chemicals in your process? And how do you recycle and manage those chemicals so they're not going back into the environment? And, um, you know, back to hiring the expert is, yeah, there are consulting firms. But now, as I mentioned, too, there are universities that are teaching this as a master's level degree. You can go get somebody with a master's degree in some level of ecological, you know, business, whether it's manufacturing or whatever, and you can utilize these people. And these are these are methods as well. Yes, exactly. And, you know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of my network is full of consultants within this space. And for instance, um, I had a meetup with one of my groups virtually yesterday and one of them, she's in the automotive industry and she's improving sustainability within um, batteries, like car batteries and things like that. So there's, there's what we're seeing. I mean, I do think this is, this is a great area to bring in a consultant and um, there's just so many people who have really targeted expertise within this area for sure. Yeah, and it's, it's going to be important. So um, we've got a couple minutes left here. And so, you know, if, if, if there's like one takeaway, if, if, if you had to, to, to sell our audience on in, in, in one sentence on the importance of starting to take action, not just thinking about it, not just still trying to figure out how to deal with the millennials, because some of them are telling me that, but to really start thinking forward, what, what's the bit of advice that you would give here? Yeah, well, I think, you know, to start out with um, just a little bit of numbers, you know, one of the reasons why I think brands should care about younger generations is that they are the largest generations in history. So Gen Z is massive, Gen Alpha, the younger generation than them will be the largest generation in history. They're going to number roughly 2 billion by 2025. So, you know, companies ignore these generations at their peril. So, you know, take them seriously. 
And I think also understand that, you know, the way that they've grown up, they've had access to technology and to a different way of working. So as they're coming into the workforce, companies, you know, for a long time, we thought about how we're going to train young people. And yes, that's important, but also think about what you can learn from them and what they can bring to your company. So don't discount the life experience and, you know, the amount of knowledge that they have that they can help you grow and adapt to the future as it happens. And I think that we're not used to thinking about using new hires in that way and kind of tapping into that knowledge. But I think that that's going to be really important as we go forward. That, that's excellent. And, you know, I, I think that there's more to come on all of this. So, um, you know, one of the things I've learned and, and I've not myself been, let's say, an Instagram person, and everything, but there are multiple avenues to start considering. And I'm, I, I'm starting to use these things, so, you know, beyond the LinkedIn that we use in, in business. And if you want to stay up on what's going on and, um, and what Katie's working on, you have an Instagram account. People can, can join in and follow, and there's a lot of information gets provided through that. What is, uh, what is your Instagram account or handle? Yeah, our handle is at the Moonshot Agency. And that is sort of a hub for all of our content. So that's really one of the best ways to interact with Moonshot and also to follow along with insight and um, just thoughts for the industry. And for, for those of us, those, those, those listeners who don't have an Instagram account, how might they find you, find you on the web? Yeah, we're at themoonshotagency.co. So that's .co. And Moonshot agency is spelled as it sounds there's no mm-hmm. you know no hyphens or anything strange sometimes in this world we have to make some modifications yeah uh, obviously also if, if, if you want to get a hold of katie you know you can always reach out to me as well and i can make a connection um you know you can reach out through the listener at transformativeexperts.com or um through you know my personal you know author website at chris elias author.com uh, got my company, you you know, lots of ways to get a hold of me as well. Katie, thank you so much for being with us today. This has been really good. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. It's been great. No, it's been, it's, it's been wonderful. And I I think there's more to come probably ask, uh, maybe we'll wait a few months or a year, see where things go. We get post COVID, but I might have you back on, you know, for some short sessions where we're bringing some experts back for little bits and pieces, even planning some panel discussions. So stay tuned because I think that this is a topic we all need to be aware of and we all need to be on top of. So, um, Anyway, that's our show for this week. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, We'll be back with another transformative expert next week. Until then, take care. Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.